following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I am excited to help close out our series here today, uh, to jump into the end of Matthew's book, and to, again, rehearse some themes that we've seen the last few weeks, and to see it all brought to climax and fruition here in the final chapter Um, I'm thankful for the guys that have taken the last few weeks to give their time and energy uh, to speak truth to us and to help us dive into the passages that we have. I'm excited for Chris to be back next week um, and to take us back into a final month of Joshua. So these are are good. And so thank you for bearing with us too that don't get the opportunities each week to be up here in front of you to be able to have the opportunity to walk through the series with you, and it's been a good time for me and a good time, I know, for all of us as pastors. Um, You might think through, like, okay, so why is it that we choose people, the pastors, to have the roles that they do here and there? Why is it that maybe, like, out of all the ones that have really good singing voices, Jordan's got to be up here singing each week and lead us in that way? We've designed this series um, for various reasons, and one of the reasons or one of the goals is for you to come to the end of the morning and to say, I get it, I get it, Uh, and to be (laughs) good with things being normal next week, Uh, and so we look forward to that. I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 28. We're going to read the whole chapter, all of Matthew 28, uh, because in order for us to dig into verses 16 through 20, we all, hopefully, um, or mostly all of us would understand this as this great commission passage as Matthew finishes his book. Um, we want to be able to see it in light of what Matthew's doing. Again, we've seen from the very beginning, as Chris showed us chapter one, we've seen that Matthew has a purpose, not just in just getting physical words on the page, but telling a story and arguing an argument, persuading his readers of a certain reality. Um, And that plays itself out all through the letter into this final chapter. And so we aren't going to really understand what Jesus is saying and what Matthew is presenting Jesus as. Uh, at the end of this uh, until we kind of see it in light of the whole and what he's trying to persuade us about Jesus and about reality in this last chapter. So let's read through the text together and pray, and then we will uh, dig into just a few things together this morning. This is coming on the heels again of Jesus's death And uh, his being taken by one of his more wealthy followers, Joseph of Arimathea, shows up and he's taking him to uh, his tomb. Uh, So Jesus is being buried there. And in the meantime, as this is playing out, Pilate, the chief priests are thinking through, okay, what do we do to kind of squelch any further uh, issues with, with, with Jesus' followers, making sure that nothing further happens that's crazy. Um, and so they decide to seal and guard the tomb that just Jesus has been laid in. And so the women are now coming um, the morning after the Sabbath on a Sunday morning to uh, go do what they would do in this culture to take care of the body. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. When you're reading this passage, does that just strike you as funny? It strikes me as funny. I think it's funny. I mean... Would you, can you imagine yourself being one of the women and and Jesus showing up as he does? And essentially, I mean, there's nothing special about this word. It's just like, good morning, hi, hello, here I am. It just strikes me as funny as like Matthew's writing this and he's kind of chuckling as he's writing this. And again, understand the nature of the shock of this a little bit, that we're at this climax of Jesus has been killed and he's been buried and he's risen again and angels have come to tell about it. 
and he shows himself to them and says, hi. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just funny to me that, that it is this way. Um, Chris came back from a vacation last week, and it's very normal for somebody to come in after vacation, right? And we see him like, hey, good morning. And Chris says, good morning. Good to see you. It's been a little while. We know that you were just kind of out vacationing for a couple weeks. That's not funny. That's normal, right? But if Chris had been brutally murdered up on Mount Trashmore Friday afternoon and showed up this morning and said and did the same thing, that would be very something different entirely, right? That would, that would be strange. Um, but this is how we see Jesus, even in this instance, showing himself to be alive again and yet a gentle and comforting king that shows up and in a sense is like, I told you, I told you this was going to be. And he shows up and announces himself to them. And now we move on. They came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and we'll keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we come and we acknowledge and declare this morning that you are King of kings, Lord of lords. You rule and reign over all of heaven and earth. We are your people, and so we come with humility, rejoicing, hearing these words and understanding that they mean so much. There is cosmic importance to these events playing out in our world 2,000 years ago. So, so as we approach this text, and as we surely don't do it justice, but as we take a look at just a few aspects of what Matthew is doing here, seek to hear and then to trust and obey, in light of it, God, may you work as only you can. Continue to form us into the image of Christ. Continue to form us as your disciples. That go and make disciples. And may your will be done. May you get the glory for what you do now and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. So my goal in these few minutes is for us to just do some, hopefully not random observations, but there is some thought and flow to this, and to just, again, looking at the chapter as a whole, what's Matthew doing as he shows us these narratives, and we saw these little glimpses and scenes, so to speak, as he finishes his gospel. Then let's dig down uh, for a couple minutes into just a couple aspects about the Great Commission itself, um, about verses 16 through 20, kind of do a little bit closer of a reading. And if you have grown up in church, if you have heard a message on this passage um, before, it might be different observations than you've heard before. It doesn't mean maybe the ones you've heard before aren't right, um, but hopefully we'll maybe um, dig in a bit and see some other aspects of this really, really well-known passage and um, be encouraged and challenged again from it rather than just to like, oh no, another great commission message. I need to buy my tickets to Botswana, you know, to be a, a, a good Christian here. Again, I'm going to hear that. Let's, let's look at some other things here in this passage and then make some applications, exhortions, and um, conclude with those things as we, as we hear and as we obey. As we do so, I want us again to see the connection with this passage as we have seen um, with other passages that the other guys have shown us in these previous weeks. We have attempted to show that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the one that was promised from of old, the one that the prophets spoke of. He is the literal son of David, and that mattered that as God worked in history, he chose a specific people to work through so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he promised 
that this person, this one, this Messiah would come through the lineage of David. And so he's attempted right out of the gate to show us there are certain presuppositions that these readers of Matthew had. They're looking and they're analyzing. This is true. Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one that would come and that would live the life that these readers, that us, couldn't live. He would die a death, maybe surprising in some ways that that would be the story and that's where the story would lead. But he, he would die a death that would take our sin, provide forgiveness and redemption, would in turn give his people his righteousness, the perfect life that he lived. And he would rise again as king of kings, as one worthy of the allegiance of all of creation. We have seen that in various aspects throughout Matthew's gospel. And if you've had the time or will still take the time to read through the whole gospel, um, see these themes coming out, that Jesus has particular and peculiar authority. He is like nobody else before or after. He has been given the power and authority, as we saw in Matthew 8, to overcome spiritual darkness He's overthrowing spiritual darkness. He's come and he has power and authority over physical brokenness and the aspects of our world that are just what they are because of sin. He has power over all of that. He is a king who has the power to come and say, this is my kingdom, this is what it looks like, and I have the power to invite you into it. And I have the ability to make those things take place. And so he is this one. And I desire for us this morning and just looking at a few things together in this final chapter to see again that Jesus is who he says he is and that it means something and that it matters to us today. <clears throat> so firstly, I want us to consider just something in Matthew's layout of the chapter as a whole. Right? Remember, Matthew's not just writing to kind of get like truth statements out on a page. He's not like sitting there like we Westerners do with bullet points, like, let me just make a couple observations for you. He's writing literature. He's telling a story. And man, he is good at it. He's not just a, a meager uh, fisherman, right, um, with a uh, little education, a little know-how. He is writing here with the abilities he's been given, empowered by the Spirit, to present us a masterful work um, of, of persuasion and of teaching and calling us to see things as they are. But in Matthew 28, and coming out of 27 into 28, what we actually see is Matthew is persuading his hearers and his readers here to believe true things about what happened to Jesus and what Jesus does and says and commissions his people for. And so Matthew sets that up, not just to, again, lay some bullet points and truth statements out saying, here you go, but he uses literature to show us really two stories playing out. There are Two kingdoms with kings and subjects and commissions, really, that we see here in Matthew 28. And he's doing this partly because in Matthew's day, this is almost a generation after Jesus actually literally did these things he's talking about. But there's a story, probably multiple stories, about what happened to Jesus. This was not just these like religious things that somebody believed, but very much, yes, Jesus came and lived and announced certain things, and he was crucified by Romans. What happened after that? And so he's presenting us this narrative and to call us to believe what is true and what really happened. One of the kings in his kingdoms are the Jewish officials, the Jewish leaders, and really their puppet, uh, Pilate. That is the head of one of the kingdoms. His subjects are the guards and other people. And even at the moment of Matthew's readers reading this book, they're the ones that have believed this story that Matthew presents of, of Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the guards and their story and their commission and their kingdom. And so he presents these folks as somewhat sinister from the very get-go, realizing that if they don't do something, this imposter Jesus is going to still be troublesome to them, even though he's buried and dead in the grave. They're concerned that this truth that was made... Uh, throughout his life, and they remember even him speaking to the fact that he would rise again. They're like, we want to kind of like catch that at the head and not have to do any further work to um, squelch a story. So let's just set up some guards. Let's seal the tomb. Let's do everything we can to keep any kind of notion of this ever happening uh, from coming out. You see, there's even a commission with that where Pilate tells the guards to go and do something, to go and proclaim a certain message to believe a certain thing and call others to believe a certain thing about what happened to Jesus. 
This is one of the narratives that we're seeing in Matthew 28. And then, of course, the other narrative is the narrative of Jesus, the king and Lord of all, coming, and he has subjects, and he has a message, and he has a commission as well. And so Matthew presents the story here that not the deception's not happening. There is not kind of some subversive thing to kind of squelch a reality, but he's just announcing this is reality. This is what happened. In the face of all these beliefs in Matthew's day, what actually happened is what Jesus said would happen. He was buried, and just as these sinister plotters and kingdoms of the earth were trying to keep reality and truth and God's plan from happening, Jesus did rise from the dead. These guards and these people in power put over it, they're, they're made to look foolish by an angel coming and being like, oh, this stone sealed, tomb sealed, big deal. It's pushed away. Not, not a problem. We have authority in every way presenting itself here over the kingdoms of the world. And um, this kind and gracious, all-powerful king comes and announces that he is who he says he is, that all has come to pass, and that he now has a message and a commission to give his subjects. And he's calling them now to go and present what is true. Not just specifically here as your eyewitnesses to this event, but in so being eyewitnesses to this event, you are to called to go pronounce the reign of God and the kingdom of Jesus to all nations over the whole world. It's a little bit bigger. It's a little bit bigger of a plot. It's a little bit bigger of a reality than just some guys kind of like in the back corner being like, all right, we've got this. We're going we're gonna to do away with this. And so in the face of all the powerful people of that day and in the face of those where the Jews were scared and anxious about the power of Pilate and these religious leaders, in the face of those who were supposed to actually be priests and love and serve the people of God and to call them to God, they're instead the ones doing just the opposite. And so Matthew, right out of the gate, says, look at what's happening here. I'm calling you to believe this and to be persuaded that this whole thing that I've been showing you throughout my gospel is true. Believe it, and, and then you will see how it plays out. So that's what um, is going on here that is just powerful in and of itself. But then it helps us to dig into, I think, verses 16 through 20 and to see it as this is the true story. This is the right commission. Are you going to believe this one over here? Or are you going to believe what the king of kings says and what he calls his people to? And so there is persuasion right to the end and a call to believe and to then live in response to that truth. So digging in just for a few minutes to verses 16 through 20. The disciples by the prodding, again, by the prodding of the women. The women show themselves here in the, from um, watching the crucifixion take place when all the men had run away, scared. The women are there watching and believing. They're there watching Jesus be buried. They're there on Sunday morning going to take care of the body of Jesus. They're the ones that are the first eyewitnesses and the ones to, told to kind of go tell these men to get with it. Go, believe, go listen. Finally, stop being scared, stop being anxious. Go and listen to the King of Kings and what he has called you to do. And that's beautiful in that when we read the rest of the New Testament, we understand the Spirit of God was poured out on his people and, and in the apostles and the church. But we also know, too, that he used human means along the way. And even the simple, profound faith of these women all along that was constant to tell these men who in moments of discomfort turned around with their tails between their legs and ran away. Call them to believe and go see and to go hear. And it's out of these human means and the work of the Spirit of God that we finally see these men standing up and taking leadership and you know, giving us much of the rest of the New Testament um, in their eyewitness accounts and in God's work in them to start this commission. It's beautiful in and of itself and great reminders to you women too to never be afraid to believe and to speak truth and in the face of so many of us men either abdicating or holding our authority in uh, untruthful, unbelieving ways to call us to believe and to go and to um, be who we have been created to be. And so it's beautiful truth in the midst of this. But they have called these men and these disciples to go to a mountain to hear Jesus. Jesus 
all through the book of Daniel, or through the book of Matthew, when he shows up on a mountain, you listen. There is something important taking place. This is true all through history, um, biblical history too, right? So it's again another way where Matthew is showing Jesus comes and he does things in the same way when God revealed himself on the mountains. His son Jesus is revealing himself in these high points and speaking truth, and you must listen at these moments. And so yet again, they're on a mountain prepared to hear from their risen Savior and King Jesus. They come, there's still mixed emotions, they're worshiping, there's doubt, there's probably incredulousness, kind of getting their minds wrapped around this and starting to connect the dots with what Jesus has been teaching them for a few years. In the midst of all this wonder and incredulity, is that the right word? And, and belief and worship, Jesus says, okay, listen, I have something I need to tell you. We know from other accounts that this is likely around the same scene where he ascends back um, into heaven. Um, and, and so this is important here. This is final words before Jesus departs. And he says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think we can somewhat grasp that just simply through our walking through Matthew these last few weeks, right? I just mentioned all the ways we've seen his authority. We read the book and we see that the people that are hearing his words back all the way in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, they're on the mountain hearing him and he's taking the word of God and saying, I have the authority to tell you what this really means. I have the authority to tell you what this has always meant and what it has always pointed to. I have the ability and authority to say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like, and I am inviting you into this. He has that type of authority. We've seen him have all the other types of authority that he has had. And so even with that knowledge in our, in our framework, we can read this and be like, yeah, that's, that's significant, isn't it? That's some significant authority. But I think there's a specific way in which Matthew and Jesus um, work to show that this authority isn't just like, whoa, he kind of has some power in all these different realms, but this is the type of authority that usurps everything else. This is cosmic authority. And Matthew does this in his writing, and Jesus too, as he's teaching, as we're seeing glimpses of what Jesus is doing, he does it through this title that Jesus uses of himself, Son of Man. Now, we might hear that and think like, oh yeah, if you're Chronicles and Narnia fans, like, oh yeah, son of Adam and daughter of Eve, you're just talking about a human being, right? There is something to this title that is significant and cosmic in scope. We start to see it a few chapters back in Matthew 24. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's dismayed at the unbelief of Jerusalem. He starts to interact with the Jewish leaders, and for several chapters, we see this back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish leaders as they press in and try to show that he isn't who he says he is. And um, you see, again, this other kingdom trying to work hard to usurp the authority of Jesus. And after all of that, you come to him pronouncing woes on the scribes, the Pharisees. He laments over this city, and he does so because he says, this city, this, this place where God's dwelling has been for centuries, where the people of God have come and worshipped and interacted with God of creation and have sought to be a city on a hill that sheds light to the rest of the world, this city is doomed for destruction. That is sad, but it's not out of God's plan. Again, yeah, when Jesus talks about this, the disciples are like, whoa, hold on a second. What's, what's going on here? Jerusalem is kind of important, and you're saying that there's not even going to be a stone standing on top of another stone? And so they ask Jesus a question, what is going to happen? Why is this going to happen? And is this a sign of like your kingdom coming in all its fullness? Is this the end of everything? Please tell us. And so Jesus does, and he answers them in ways that maybe are hard for us to understand. Or is he like talking about like right now, or is he talking about the end that we have yet to see yet, or somewhere in the middle? What is all of this? But he does so by using um, apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language. Now, some of you get, might get a little excited about that word and like put your put your zombie response vehicles away, put your uh, you know timeline charts, end time charts away, keep them on the shelf. When he starts to speak in apocalyptic language, he's using something that his disciples would have been very familiar with, um, much of the larger culture would have been familiar with. We're not overly familiar with it, other than um, seeing it in uh, tabloids at the checkout counter, right? Um, And yet, 
this type of um, speaking, this genre of literature, was essentially a way for helping people get above reality and the nitty-gritty of daily life to see things as they really were. So not above reality in an alternate reality, but as they are living their life in the midst of oppression and suffering, um, in the midst of God's revelation to them, and they're saying, hold on a second, what's going on? We don't get this. Apocalyptic literature was meant as a comfort and an encouragement, not a freak-you-out type literature, but as a comforting and encouraging form of literature speaking to take people and like pull them out of the trees and kind of hold them up above it all so they could see everything, the big picture idea, the helicopter view. Um, and it, it, in a sense, took the veil between heaven and earth and pulled it aside so you could kind of see again that what God was doing in all of creation and particularly for each individual, what they were facing in their everyday life. And it spoke in very symbolic and unusual ways to us to, again, bring about comfort and encouragement. In the midst of this apocalyptic discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples, he says in the middle part of chapter 24 that when these things are taking place, the destruction of Jerusalem and this age where there is difficulty and struggle, that in the midst of that there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This isn't just a like, there's this dude, this man, this human that's going to come about. This is specific that his disciples are going to understand a little about. We see him then not too long after as his um, time has come and he is in a uh, standing trial um, in front of the high priest, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is like, listen, you need to tell me are you the son of God? And Jesus replies, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says something very specific, and if you continue reading the following verses, Caiaphas isn't too happy about it. He ruins his outfit. He flips out. He's angry, and the people's response is that this guy has to die. We need to crucify this person. He is a blasphemer. So whatever he's saying here, when he's throwing out the term son of man, there's some background to it, right? That's really upsetting people and surprising people that he would tie himself and unite himself to this term. He is quoting from the middle of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And again, when we get into the book of Daniel, things get hairy a lot of times, right? We're like, what in the world is going on? We don't have time to talk all through what's happening here uh, in Daniel's book, but for us, again, to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, we have to understand what Daniel 7 is saying because Jesus is basically quoting a passage of Daniel 7, and that's what's riling people up because they know what that passage is talking about, so they think. So in order to do that, let me just take a minute to give you a little bit of story, um, tell a little story, so to speak, that ties in what is happening here in Daniel 7 so we understand what Jesus' authority looks like. So way back at the beginning, this is not an original story, mind you, way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve are created and we see God ruling over all. He creates a garden and establishes basically his dwelling place on earth and a throne for his image bearers that are essentially functioning as a king and queen to jump on the throne with God and to rule as his image bearers this earth. And they are called to, in their first commission, to spread God's reign and spread that garden over all the world. That's what their calling is. And so they are called to do certain things in that world and to function a certain way. In the midst of that paradise comes a serpent, comes a beast, comes an animal that speaks deceit and speaks lies and chaos into this place and into their commission and causes things to fall apart. There's sin and rebellion. And as such, Adam and Eve can no longer function on a throne with God, but they are kicked off that throne and kicked out of that place and sent outside the garden to the place where beasts and animals live and not much else is happening there yet. 
One of the first narratives we see after that in Genesis is the narrative of their offspring, Cain and Abel. And Cain is upset. He is not happy with God's rule and reign. And so he decides that he's going to take the life of his brother because he's so angry. God in his graciousness comes and he says, Cain, before you do that, understand that there's a beast inside of you. There are these desires and urges that are welling up in you that are the manifestations of the rebellion of your parents and what the new reality is for you. And I'm warning you, don't give in to those urges. Don't give in to that beast. He says, instead, rule over those things. Rule over those desires and urges. Cain does not listen. He kills Abel. And so we see further manifestation of chaos and sin and rebellion and this picture of this animalism in the midst of it all. And Cain and his offspring are seen a few chapters later as the city of Babel is built. And the city of Babel represents the exact antithesis of God's commission to Adam and Eve. And they are totally focused on themselves. This chaos, this beastliness plays out in man and in their systems and in their kingdoms more and more until we find ourselves in Daniel, where Daniel, as one of God's people, having been given the promises of God, finds himself and the rest of Israel, Judah, in exile because they have not obeyed the covenant. They have not believed God themselves. They have not functioned as a city on the hill. And so they are living, literally dwelling in Babylon, the kingdom of the beasts, the kingdom that represents everything wrong with the world. And he has been there, and he's beginning to think God has... It's, it's like, you know, he's, he's basically living a lament. Like, God, where are you? Where are your promises? We, we have trusted in your promises from all the way back to Abraham. Where are you and what are you doing? So God in his graciousness, not just to Daniel, but to his people in exile, gets apocalyptic and uses apocalyptic literature to present to them this high-level cosmic view of what God is doing and he has always done and he has yet to fail even though they find themselves in the trees and the hardship of exile to Babylon. So Daniel has this vision and in this vision he sees this sea of chaos and in the sea of chaos come four beasts and these beasts become more hideous as each one shows itself but they are animals and the one uh, the fourth one is so crazy and hideous, he doesn't even have words to describe it. He can't, even, he can't even talk about it. He asks later on, like, what is this thing? What does it show? And so he sees these beasts come and cause chaos and sees this evil play out in many ways. But in the midst of all of this and in the, of, in the midst of like, unspeakable evil and chaos, Daniel says he looked and there were thrones placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. Thousands and thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And he says he's looking because of the sound of the words that this horn, this final beast, was speaking. And as he looked... The beast was killed, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for all the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away too, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And he saw in these visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. This vision Daniel has, and as this vision is interpreted, he is told, this is the reality of history. This is the chaos you find yourself in. But that throne that was left empty when Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden has yet to be filled by anybody. But God's plans are not thwarted. That throne will have somebody sit in it, and they will rule and reign with God on high, with the Ancient of Days. One will come. And Daniel gets to see, through this vision, that God's plan will come to pass, that at some point, one who has the ability to sit on the throne, who is perfect, complete in every way, is righteous in every way, can come and sit and fill that place that mankind usurped. 
And he is the son of man. He is the fruition of everything that the world has been hoping for. And yet over and over and again, they have seen that every man that has lived and died cannot be the son of man. In the midst of all of this, Jesus comes and uses this term. No wonder it gets people upset. He is saying that he is the one from eternity past that has been chosen to come and sit on this throne and to make all things new, to destroy the beast, destroy the chaos and powers of the world, and to reign, and then to call people from all nations and languages to come and worship him and serve him and reign with him in the Ancient of Days. So with this background, as Matthew has been presenting this through his gospel, he presents Jesus coming and saying, I'm serious, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He is the Son of Man. This is, this is uh, you know, taking all of the, the glimpses and the scenes that we have in the book and, and heightening it even more so to see that this is true cosmic authority. As a king with all of this authority, he takes a ragtag group of people who have shown their unbelief in so many ways and he gives them a commission Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. So for a moment, let's just dig deep into this a little bit. He calls them to make disciples. And he says, make disciples literally having gone. In other words, almost in an assumptive, like, as you go, make disciples. That's the primary call. That is the command there with it tied to this assumptive, like, yeah, you're going to be going, so as you go, make disciples. He uses his authority to vest authority in his disciples. He calls them now, because I have authority, now I'm giving you authority to go and speak truth, to declare the realities of who I am to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're going because they have been redeemed, This son of man is the one whose throne was the cross. It was through the very powers of the beasts that God worked to make all things right and to bring forgiveness to all who would trust in this king and declare allegiance to him. They are now being given the authority to go into all aspects of life. This isn't just like little time gaps or time frames in our routine that we function this way. He's saying, I have worked in such a way that I am now creating you new again, and you are new creations, you can do all the things that Adam and Eve were called to do because you're united to me, the king. And so that means not just that there are certain religious rituals that matter, that there are not just like certain aspects of life where we can declare and demonstrate and then other ones are just mundane and part of the kingdoms of this world, but that God comes into the midst of those things, is overthrowing them, and says, I've got a people that are going to be totally different in the midst of this kingdom of beasts. And everything they they do and say and touch can be worship. Everything that they do and say and touch can be a demonstration that God reigns, what Chris read to us in Psalm 96 at the outset of our time together. God reigns. Declare it. Believe it. He calls them to go to make further followers, and that this is his plan to do cosmic work to bring heaven and earth back together again. So how do you do this? There's got to be some, like, earth-shaking, amazing thing that, like, once it happens, everybody will see and won't be able to, like, help but believe. Well, as a ragtag group of people that struggle to believe, but you have been saved, forgiven, and equipped and given authority, go baptize, teach. Hard things in one sense, right? We know what it is like to try and declare the reign of God in certain contexts. It's hard, but yet so simple. So against what we would perceive in so many ways, and yet the kingdom of God is breaking into the upside-down kingdom of the beasts, and through simple declaration and demonstration, God's kingdom goes forth. Baptism is simply an initiation of belief. It's the first step of belief that Jesus is who he says he is, and you saying, 
I am pledging allegiance to this king. My life is different. This is my identity. Baptize people into this identity as they believe. The beginning of their obedience, the beginning of their discipleship. And then teach them to observe what Jesus has been telling people all along. He says, simply just teach them what I've commanded you. Teach them what I've taught you. We understand that even by the time Matthew's writing this, some of our other New Testament books have been written, and so of course we have all of the, the um, imperatives and commandments and teachings there. But even in light of just Matthew's gospel, the things that Jesus taught was that my kingdom looks like this, Sermon on the Mount. Other aspects, the way he healed and did miracles, teach people that this is reality and that the weak and the humble those that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those that are persecuted, they're called to go and to make disciples. This is the teaching. Believe this to be the case. Believe this is my kingdom. Believe this is the cosmic truth of the world. And continue that generation after generation. Of course, it's all-encompassing. Of course, we could take a sermon in of itself just to talk about what it means to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is King of Kings. But I'm sure that if you have been in the church long at all, you hear that, as you should, in a lot of ways. And so I want us to think specifically about this authority that God has been given. So that as we think of a couple applications, I think we can do so maybe a little bit more soberly. A couple applications simply this. When you read these things... You even see Matthew presenting these dual realities fighting against each other in this chapter. What do you believe to be true about your reality and about the reality of the world? Do you believe this message that Matthew is presenting? Do you believe the story that does at face value sound like foolishness? That God would come in flesh? That he would somehow be able to, through his death, take care of our problem and fix everything? Does that just sound like religious cuckoo-ness in any way? Or is this what you believe to truly be the reality of the world? And if you say you believe it is the true story of the world, that it is ultimate reality, then does your life reflect that in every way, that it is worth all of our allegiance in every way? Or does your life, having said you believe that in some sense, does your life more look like, yeah, like it's just like, yeah, it's some religious stuff, I'll give it a certain part of my life, but then I've got lots of other compartments too and different aspects and things that I give allegiance to. Are you trying to function with one foot in each narrative, in other words? Are you trying to say like, yeah, I I think I need Jesus for um, like ultimate destiny type stuff. I think I need him for making sure that this, I'm part of this everlasting kingdom that he says he's a part of, but man, I also like the fact that these other kings promise wealth and prosperity. They promise protection and comfort. You see that in what Pilate was giving to these people, even as the guards were concerned, like, is this going to be okay? Don't worry. Here, here's some money. Take it. Do as I said. Don't worry. I'll protect you. Don't worry. You'll be comforted. Everything will be okay. Do we like the sounds of that enough to try and have one foot in that narrative and that kingdom? Because... As we read more broadly, we understand that Jesus' kingdom is one where he says, you will be treated like I've been treated. There is no promise of prosperity, per se. There is no promise of comfort, per se, or even protection, per se, in a physical way. As this commission was believed and obeyed by the disciples, we read the book of Acts, and they go out, and we understand that even before the rest of the New Testament was written, These people were losing their lives for their allegiance to Jesus, the King. So there is no promise of earthly comfort, per se, or protection. But what do we believe is actually real, though? What do we believe is real? If we believe that what Jesus is saying is real and that all authority is given to him, who cares about the promises of protection and comfort and prosperity from these other kingdoms that are just beasts? We ultimately do have the most important comfort, the most important protection. We have the promise of flourishing because we are united to Christ. And that even the workings and tools of the beasts and their kingdoms no longer have power against us, though we experience them. But Jesus in his authority takes and uses those things for our good.
and his glory. So what story are you believing? Whether you claim to be a Christian or you're a doubter, skeptic, unbeliever, I challenge you to think about these things. What story are you believing and what story are you living in? Is there any of us, any of you that claim one story but live the other? It doesn't work like that. Another admonition is to realize that the way in which Jesus works out this commission and his people is through this thing called the church. It's not real showy. It's not real impressive on many fronts and in many times throughout history. And yet as we read the book of Acts, Jesus' disciples obey and do these things and the church is formed. And just as Jesus came announcing the good news and showing it through miracles and and wonders, and signs, and all of these things to say, what I'm saying is true, take note, listen, he sends and commissions the church to do the same thing. And I think we see in Acts, and at times throughout history, that happens with some great wonders, and signs, and power sometimes. But you know what's normal? You know what happens normally, what God's plan is for this age? Is that he works, again, in a way that seems pretty um, surprising, He says, you know what? The world's going to know you're my disciples. You're going to bear witness to the truth and the reality of who I am, even on a cosmic level, by loving each other, by functioning in a way that says, like, you have to be sons and daughters of the Son of Man, not of these beastly kingdoms. Something radical has taken shape. And so when the body of Christ functions as individuals and as corporate bodies, local expressions, and the universal church, of course, God's design is that we would bear witness through just very normal, everyday context of our lives. That his power would be seen in things that don't give us the glory, but give him the glory. Do we recognize the importance of the church? And I don't mean like this thing right here, happening an event for an hour and a half every Sunday, though it is crucially important, we understand. But do you prioritize all things church? Do you prioritize that for you, for your children, for your growth and wholeness? Because you realize that this is how God is working. This is his chosen tool to bring all things to pass. Are you trusting in his word? Are you learning from his word? Are you praying? Are you seeking his face? Are you depending on the spirit? All these things are ramifications of his commission to us. Quickly to close, we've kept us a while here, but to close, I simply want you to see this final promise in verse 20. Jesus understands, again, as our gentle shepherd, king, he understands that this commission, if we again step back and see it in light of the whole, this is uh, not an easy thing. It's a little bit of a scary thing. There's a lot of anxiety that can come with the thought of us being witnesses to God's reign when we are living in a world that is represented in Daniel's vision by hideous beasts rising up to cause chaos and lord themselves over the world in different ways. But he says, don't worry. I'm not just out of here. I'm not just giving you something then saying like, go go do your best. He says, do these things. Walk this way. Live in light of these truths. And know that I am with you literally all the days. Every single day of this age, back when the disciples said, when's the When's the temple going to be destroyed? When's all things going to come to pass? And he says, this day, this day, this day. Think about that as he's saying, all the days, all the stuff that's going to happen from the time he went to sit in that empty throne and take his position in it, the day when he will come again, every single day, he is with us. His presence is with us. We move ahead in the story to other apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation. And that book starts out with John having a vision, again, pulling back the veil and seeing in the throne room of God what was happening at the time that John was writing that book so that his readers could be comforted. What's happening? He gets to look and to see that what is happening is there is one like a son of man who has the same uh, look that this Ancient of Days had in Daniel 7. And he is there in the midst of lampstands holding stars in his hand. And we might say, and how is that supposed to comfort us? Thankfully, John says, what does this mean? And it's interpreted and given to us in Revelation 1. It says, the Son of Man is the one who was slain. He's the Son of David. All of these things that Matthew gives us here. And he is in the midst of lampstands. The lampstands represented churches in that day and age, represented God's work to send his church out into all the 
nooks and crannies of the world, and he held in his hand the identities of those churches. He is in the midst of us as a church. He is with us. Even John is able to look in a horrible time of church history and his church being persecuted is able to say, what are you doing, Lord? Is this, is this true? Are these promises going to come to pass? And he looks and he sees the Son of Man is right in the middle of his church. He's with his people and he is reigning and working so that all things will come to pass. So that as we read Revelation 21, we can know that is true as well. That there will be a new heaven, a new earth. The old earth and heaven passed away and the sea was no more. This is not a geographical truth. This is a theological truth. The sea, this aspect of chaos and uncertainty that the beasts rise out of in Daniel 7, that sea doesn't exist once all things are brought to pass. Evil is done away with. And God declares that he will dwell with his people forever and his people will dwell with him forever. Jesus' promise in Matthew 28 encourages us for today. He is with his people. And it encourages us with a sure and steadfast hope that the end of all things will be that this presence will be enjoyed and fulfilled perfectly, completely. There will be no more pain, no more hurt, no more death, no more crying, as it says in Revelation. All that stuff will be passed away as well. But we can know for sure, as we hold to this real, true story of the world, that even now, as we do face all of those things, they're not accidental, and they don't mean that the beasts of these earthly kingdoms have power over the one in which we're called to give allegiance. But our king and our savior our good and loving shepherd has authority over them all. And so all that we face today, tomorrow, all that we have faced, is not just chaos and confusion, but it has complete and full meaning for us. So I call us to just reflect on these things, ask good questions of this text and where you're at with the outworking of that allegiance, with the outworking of being given that commission, Don't just hear and then run from it, but consider what this looks like for us as individuals and as an expression of God's church called to make disciples, teaching to observe, speaking the reign of God to all the shadows and dark places of our world. And our Lord and our Savior is with us till the end. Let's pray. God, take these things and work them into us now. We pray. I am weak, we are weak, we're dependent on you. You have promised your presence, you've given us your spirit. He has sealed us and said that the things that have been pronounced from ages ago, the things that Jesus accomplished and is doing now is sealed on us as your people so that we never have to worry or fear about what you're doing. Thank you for giving us little peeks behind the curtain, so to speak, to know that Your cosmic will is working out even in the events of the rest of this day. Thank you for being with us in this time. In Christ's name, amen.